The Murder Minute podcast contains depictions of real-life true crime stories. Some details may be disturbing, and listener discretion is advised. This is Murder Minute. I'm your host, Mrs. Smitty, and today is Thursday, January 6, 2022. Today on Murder Minute, I'm bringing you the story of a man who paid the ultimate price for the heinous crimes he committed, and whose death caused controversy and sparked discussions across America about how we deal with some of our country's worst criminals. But first, your true crime headlines. A North Carolina state trooper and a civilian were killed during a traffic stop when the trooper's brother, who is also a state trooper, accidentally crashed into them, according to the North Carolina State Highway Patrol. Trooper John S. Horton was conducting a traffic stop on Monday night when his brother, Trooper James N. Horton, who was responding to assist with the stop, lost control of his patrol vehicle and crashed into the men, killing them both. The driver has not yet been identified. John Horton was a 15-year veteran of the force and leaves behind a wife and six children. A GoFundMe has been created to assist the family with funeral costs. A city court judge in Louisiana resigned last week over a video that surfaced last month showing people using racial slurs at her home. In the one-minute-long video, people inside Judge Michelle Odenay's house can be heard using a racial slur repeatedly and laughing as they narrate security camera footage playing on a television of a person trying to break into a car in the driveway. There are no people seen on the video, but they use the word mom a few times, and two of them identify themselves as being in the security camera footage attempting to stop the burglar. Odenay, who was a city court judge in Lafayette until her resignation, claims to have taken a sedative at the time the video was made and has no memory of the episode. New Orleans District Attorney Jason Williams said last week that he ordered his Civil Rights Division to review all cases prosecuted by Odenay, who once served as Assistant District Attorney in the city. In his statement, District Attorney Williams said that, quote, the casual dehumanization displayed by Judge Odenay raises serious questions about her impartiality and the presence of bias and discrimination in her work. Independent reviews are underway by the California Attorney General's Office and the LAPD after a December 23rd officer-involved shooting that claimed the life of a 14-year-old girl. The incident occurred at a Burlington coat factory in North Hollywood as police responded to numerous reports of an assault taking place within the store. When officers confronted the suspect in the store, an officer fired three shots from his patrol rifle. One of those bullets struck and killed the suspect, and another went through the wall behind the suspect and struck a 14-year-old girl in the chest as she cowered in the changing room with her mother. That girl, Valentina Oriana Peralta, died in her mother's arms. The investigation will determine whether or not the shooting was justified. The suspect, 24-year-old Daniel Elena Lopez, had assaulted a customer with a bike lock, but did not have a gun. The Los Angeles Police Department identified William Dorsey Jones Jr. as the officer who fired the shots. Jones's attorney said last week that the officer followed his training to a T, despite the tragic outcome. I'll update this story as the investigation continues. Those were this week's true crime headlines. After the break, I'll be back with this week's main story, about the kind of stranger that you should stay away from. Hey, Murder Minute listeners, it's me, Mrs. Smitty. 
here to tell you about the awesome new sunglasses I got from Warby Parker. Warby Parker is an amazing company committed to offering boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. They offer exceptional vision care in stores and online, offering eye exams, contact lenses, eyeglasses, and sunglasses. You can finally put the money in your FSA or HSA to good use on some high quality, stylish eyewear from Warby Parker. The glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses. And the coolest part for me is their free home try-on program. It's so simple and so much fun. I went to their website and took the quiz, which helped me narrow down the style of sunglasses that I wanted to try. I chose five pairs for my home try-on kit, and I decided to be adventurous, choosing sort of a variety of shapes and frames, uh, things that I wouldn't normally wear. They even offer narrow and wide choices in many of the styles, which is super helpful for someone like me with kind of a big head. In just a couple of days, my home try-on kit arrived. I spent a couple of days with the frames, seeing which ones were the most comfortable, getting opinions from my family and friends, and deciding which ones were the most my style. Finally, I settled on two pairs of gorgeous sunglasses that were exactly what I was looking for. And then I put all five pairs back in the box and shipped them back to Warby Parker using the prepaid shipping label that was included in my home try-on kit. And then I went to their website and placed my order. Soon enough, my new sunglasses arrived and they are by far the nicest sunglasses I've ever owned. I love them so much. The process was super easy and so much fun. I've been getting tons of compliments on my new glasses and I'm already thinking about ordering some more. You can order your own home try-on kit for free at warbyparker.com slash murder minute. That's warbyparker.com slash murder minute. Hey, Murder Minute listeners, it's me, Mrs. Smitty. I think that a lot of us adopted a more comfortable wardrobe during the pandemic. I know that I did. And even now that I'm not home all the time, I'm still not ready to compromise on comfortable clothing. And that goes double for bras. That's why I'm so glad to have found Harper Wild. Harper Wild makes bras that put comfort first. Their core collection of quality basics includes the base, a lightly lined everyday bra in a range of nudes that won't show through your shirt. And the Bliss, my personal favorite, a bralette that provides lift while feeling like a second skin. This bralette is the best one I've ever owned. It's soft, sexy, and supportive. And it's not just the bras that are amazing. The company is pretty great too. Part of their proceeds provide mentorship and advocacy for girls through Girls Inc. And they even send you a handy bra recycling kit with your purchase so that you can say goodbye to your old bras sustainably. Harper Wild makes everything about bras better. Plus, with an easy online fit quiz, conveniently priced bundles, and free returns, they've made the act of shopping for bras completely painless. So stay in your comfort zone. Go to harperwild.com slash murder minute today, and you can get 20% off your first purchase. Because the only thing better than a comfortable bra is getting a discount just for being a Murder Minute listener. That's 20% off at harperwild.com slash murder minute. It's H-A-R-P-E-R-W-I-L-D-E dot com slash murder minute. And you'll be glad you did. Welcome back. Before I begin this story, I want to caution the listeners that this case involves crimes against young children. Some of the details are graphic, 
and your discretion is advised. Today I'm going to tell you the story of a very terrible man named Wesley Allen Dodd. Wesley was born in Richland, Washington in 1961, and he was the oldest of Jim and Carol Dodd's three children. Wesley would later say of his childhood that he never heard his parents tell him that they loved him, and he couldn't remember ever saying it to them either. He was a kid without a lot of friends and didn't have a particularly happy childhood. He often witnessed violent fights between his mom and dad. On his 15th birthday, Wesley's father attempted suicide after his parents had an argument. And it was during his teenage years that Wesley started exposing himself to children in his neighborhood. His father was aware of this behavior, but mostly ignored it because, as he would later say, he believed that Wesley was a, quote, otherwise well-behaved child who never had any problems with drugs, drinking, or smoking. By the time Wesley got to high school, he had progressed to molestation, preying on his younger cousins, neighborhood children he offered to babysit, and the children of his father's girlfriend. He was arrested for indecent exposure at the age of 15, but he was released with a recommendation for counseling. When he was 20, Wesley tried to abduct two girls. The girls reported the incident to police, but nothing really happened to Wesley. One month after the attempted abduction, Wesley enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He was stationed at the submarine base in Bangor, Washington, where he began molesting kids who lived on base. Once he offered a group of boys $50 to come to a motel room with him and play strip poker. The police were notified, and even though he told officers that he intended to molest the boys, no charges were filed. A short time later, he was arrested for attempting indecent liberties on a young boy. He was discharged from the Navy for this, spent 17 days in jail, and underwent counseling. But after the military, the molestation continued with virtually no consequences. In May of 1984, he molested a 10-year-old boy and received a one-year suspended sentence. In August of 1984, he was convicted in Idaho for molesting a 13-year-old boy but he only served four months of his 10-year sentence. And then in August of 1985, he took a co-worker's seven-year-old son on a fishing trip for his birthday, where he sexually abused him. During this same month, he also molested the son of another co-worker. During this time, Wesley was also repeatedly molesting the two- and four-year-old children of one of his neighbors. When that woman discovered the molestation, she decided not to press charges against Wesley fearing that a trial would further traumatize her children. The following year, in 1986, he raped the 18-month-old son of a co-worker and also engaged in a sexual relationship with that co-worker. He would later report that when having sex with her, the only way he could achieve orgasm was by picturing her son. In 1986, he moved to Seattle, and he continued to molest young children, preying on especially vulnerable ones like his roommate's two-year-old son, who was partially deaf and could not speak. Over this time, he became more aggressive and more forceful, and he started to begin fantasizing about killing one of his victims. It was around this time that Dodd chose the first child that he would murder. His first victim was to be an eight-year-old boy that he met while he was working as a security guard for a construction site. 
While trying to convince the child to go home with him, the little boy stated that he was going to go get some of his toys, and he ended up telling his mom about Dodd, and the police were called. Dodd was arrested, but his sentence was reduced to a gross misdemeanor, for which he would serve just 118 days in jail. When he was released from jail, he moved to Vancouver, Washington. And in Vancouver, he discovered David Douglas Park, just about a mile from his apartment. The park was heavily wooded, with several remote, secluded trails. And Wesley Dodd decided that this park would be his hunting ground, and he began scouring the park for potential victims. On Labor Day weekend, 1989, Wesley encountered brothers William and Cole Near, 10 and 11 years old. He lured the brothers into the woods where he raped them both and stabbed them repeatedly before fleeing the scene. Cole died at the scene and his brother died on the way to the hospital. After the murders, Wesley began keeping a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about the crime. It would be less than two months before he killed again. He drove to Portland, Oregon in late October of 1989 and it's in Portland where he crossed paths with four-year-old Lee Iselli. Lee was playing on a school playground with his nine-year-old brother, and Wesley Dodd was able to lure the little boy away. After convincing him that his brother had gone home without him, Wesley offered to give Lee a ride. Instead, he drove the four-year-old to his apartment in Vancouver, about 10 miles away, where he repeatedly raped and tortured the little boy. The abuse continued through the night, and the next morning, Wesley Dodd strangled him to death. He hung his body in a small closet and took photographs of it, then disposed of his body in the woods and burned his clothing, all except his underwear, which Wesley kept as a trophy. Lee's body was discovered just one day later, and a massive manhunt ensued. Lee's body was discovered just one day later, and a massive manhunt ensued. Wesley Allen Dodd laid low, staying in his apartment and writing in his diary about plans for his next victim and constructing a homemade torture rack for future use. He didn't wait too long before he started hunting again. This time, his hunting ground was a movie theater in the nearby town of Camas, Washington. On November 13, 1989, during a screening of the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Wesley sunk into a seat in the back row of the theater and watched. A six-year-old boy got up in the middle of the movie to use the restroom and Wesley quietly followed him into the lobby. Wesley tried to abduct the little boy, but he kicked and screamed and fought as Wesley tried to carry him out of the theater, and employees followed them outside. Spooked by the attention, Wesley dropped the child and drove away in his car. When the boyfriend of the little boy's mom noticed that he hadn't returned from the restroom, he went out to the lobby to see what was going on. Theater employees told him about the attempted abduction and he left the theater to try and find the would-be abductor. As luck would have it, Wesley Dodd's car had broken down just a short distance from the theater, and he was on the side of the road trying to get it started again. The man grabbed Wesley and put him in a headlock and dragged him back to the theater where he was met by police. After just an hour of interrogation, Wesley Allen Dodd admitted to the murders of the Near brothers and Lee Iselli. When police searched his home, they found his still unused torture rack his gruesome diaries, and a briefcase containing Leah Selly's underwear. During Dodd's trial, the prosecution read excerpts from his diary and showed the jury pictures of Lee Selly. Dodd's defense didn't call a single witness or introduce a single piece of evidence, and their only defense was trying to convince the jury that Dodd was insane. 
The jury didn't buy it, and they found Wesley Allen Dodd guilty and sentenced him to die for his crimes. Wesley was given the choice between lethal injection and death by hanging, and he chose death by hanging because it was the way that he had killed his last victim. In prison, while awaiting his execution, Wesley Allen Dodd made a brochure for children called When You Meet a Stranger. In the handwritten pamphlet, he wrote, My name is Wes. I am the stranger you should stay away from. In this pamphlet, he described six of the more than 40 molestation attempts he said he made, and he told how and why some of those children got away without being molested. After his death sentence was handed down, Wesley Dodd declined all of his appeals, hoping to have his sentence carried out as quickly as possible. He stated that if he were ever given an opportunity to get out of jail, he would certainly attempt to rape and murder more children, and that he would enjoy every minute of it. On January 5, 1993, less than four years after his death sentence had been handed down, Wesley Allen Dodd was executed by hanging at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. He spoke his last words from the second floor of the prison's indoor gallows, stating that he had found peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death by hanging was the first such execution in America in nearly 30 years, as most states had switched to lethal injection as their means of execution by then. In an article about Dodd's execution, Time Magazine wrote, The prospect of what amounts to a glamorous public suicide was vastly more appealing than a life spent alone in a cell the size of a parking space, crushed by boredom, without the least chance of freedom. For him, Perhaps justice would have been better served by denying him his death wish and letting him wait for a very long time for death to come to him. That was this week's episode. For more true crime headlines, you can follow me on TikTok at True Crime Headlines and at Murder Minute. I'm going to be hosting a live discussion of this week's episode on the Stereo app. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Murder Minute for updates on the date and time of the live discussion. And please come join me on the Stereo app for a live discussion of this week's episode and true crime headlines. And until next week, I'm Mrs. Smitty, and this has been your Murder Minute.